0: Book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the church, churches of Galatia. You now, when you come to this time of year, and generally speaking, generally speaking, pastors that I, that I have talked with and preachers who, who are preaching don't really care too much for special occasion messages. It's generally because those are the hard ones to prepare. Uh, when you're going through a gospel, like as we've gone through the gospel of Luke, just going from one text to the other, you know what's next, you know what to do, you know what to say, and you work on the text and you go right on. But many times trying to find that perfect fit message for uh, Mother's Day or Father's Day or whatever the case may be, those are many times very difficult messages. However, I think it's appropriate at times that we do those things. Uh, we, in fact, we'll be having a message in January on the sanctity of human life. We believe that those messages are appropriate. We believe that it's appropriate to keep those things before God's people. And we take the time each November to, to focus upon the needs of our persecuted brothers and sisters in the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. So we come to the, the Christmas season or the Advent season. There are so many, fortunately, so many easy ways to preach on this on this theme and on this idea so many scriptures that we can go to that compel us to think about Christ coming and Christ advent there's so many different ways we could approach it but I've chosen this morning to uh, to go to the to the book of Galatians because I think it's important that that we keep before us the the whole picture the big picture of what's going on here that as we think about the advent with the coming of Christ, that, it, that it's much more than just a manger and animals and shepherds and all the things that we so often and rightfully so imagine when we think of the Christ coming. One of the important results of Christ's coming that we're going to be considering this morning as we look at Galatians chapter 4 verses four and five, is helping the believer, helping Christians to come to an understanding of our relation with and our obligation to the law of God. What kind of relationship do Christians, do believers have with the law? What kind of an obligation is placed upon us as Christians in, in the age of grace, in the day of the, the new covenant as given to us in Christ? What are the obligations that are placed upon us? Because we have before us the understanding that the law of God is, is given to us and it's this Unbending, it's this rigid standard. And if we rightly understand the law of God, we also understand that we violate it time after time after time after time. And so what the law accomplishes in our hearts is that it brings to us guilt. Not only brings to us True guilt because we are guilty of violating the law of God, but it also makes us feel guilty, doesn't it? The law of God bringing to us those bad feelings feelings of guilty and feelings of unworthiness. And so the temptation is as we think about the law of God and all the bad things that it seems to do for us is to think this can't be good. This thing called law just can't be good. I like grace. But then you have the words of Paul, Romans chapter 7, where Paul reminds us and in fact insists upon the reality that the law is holy and the law is good. He says that, doesn't he? And you even have in the Old Testament age, the psalmist proclaiming, I love your law. So the question that is placed before us is something like this. As a believer, as a child of God, how can I enjoy, Yeah, I'm going to say this, how can I enjoy God's law which condemns me because I violate it? I break it. I disobey it. How can I enjoy God's law and also have any assurance of being right with God? Because the law, if anything, it condemns me. It tells me I'm not right with God. So how can I enjoy it? Have any assurance that I am right with God, that I have a relationship with Him, and that I can, in fact, enjoy Him? Rather than dread Him, dread this righteous God who has revealed His law that condemns me. Is it possible? Is it possible to enjoy the law of God? Have any assurance of being right with Him, that I have a relationship with Him and really enjoy Him? And I hope today by the end of the message that you, that you realize the answer to that is Yes. It is possible. Turn with, if you haven't turned already, look with me in Galatians chapter 4. And just for context sake, I'm going to begin at the first of the chapter and read Acts of the first seven verses. But our text this morning will be Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child. You know what an heir is? An heir is someone who inherits... Someone from his usually from a father or parent. As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son. Born of a woman, born under the law. In order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's much marveling around us in this time of year, is there not? It's not all about Christmas. If you're a sports enthusiast... You know, there's a lot of college football games. If, if you're in the NFL, the NFL games are winding down this season, so it's making the, the push for the playoffs. And so if there's any big plays or if, you, if your team comes through, well, there's a lot of, of marveling, space. If, if it's a big game, there's a big big win, a big comeback or something like that. Sometimes in the minds of our children, or if you look at just what's being pushed in the stores, you know, it's the latest electronic games, the latest gizmos that you can plug into your TV and be up to speed with what's going on. There's a lot of marveling about such things. In fact, so much so that there's a shortage, is there not, of these things. But you know, whatever the world may choose to marvel at, the church, the church can beat it all. With this, God sent His Son. There's something to marvel at. That is something that is truly significant. Just remember, some years ago, after one of the, I think it was back, oh, it was Hollywood Henderson. He used to play football at the Dallas Cowboys years ago, and. And after the Dallas Cowboys had won one of the Super Bowls, and he made this comment. He said, if winning the Super Bowl is so great, why is there another one next year? How significant is this thing? Kind of helps put things in perspective, doesn't it? But when we read the words here that God sent forth His Son, there, there's something that's significant, and there is something that we can marvel about, and we can wonder about, and the world ought to marvel about, and ought to wonder about. That to stop and contemplate and give thought to that truth, that Jesus' coming is significant, and so that's where I'm going to call you to today to to draw to draw you into this text, to consideration of the truth here this morning. Again, you're not going to hear anything profound. <laughs> And you're not going to hear anything you probably haven't heard before. Maybe said a little bit different way. But many times, isn't again that our problem? We've become so overly familiar with these things. These things are said so often that they've lost something of the marvel to us and the wonder to us. So I hope that as we consider this text here today and as we are going into full blast blast here on Christmas Eve, the Christmas season, tomorrow, Christmas Day, that there are some things here that will be of help to all of us. Some things that we might truly marvel in as we think about the truth that God has sent forth His Son for us and to us. Well, what are the marvels that we can consider? Well, first of all, we can consider the marvel of God's perfections in His sending. The marvel of God's perfections in His sending. The verse here in verse 4 of chapter 4. When the fullness of time came, God... It's what I want you to think about. When the fullness of time came, God. Now, there have been a lot of different considerations of this phrase here, the fullness of time, or when the fullness of time came. Some have taken something of a philosophical approach to this. To this verse, and they've said, Well, here's what Paul has in mind here that mankind has reached a certain point of maturity. And so, when mankind reached that certain point of maturity, that they were ready for this, that God responded and God sent His Son. That was the fullness of time. Interestingly enough, others have taken, say, actually, it's not that mankind reached a point of maturity. It's that mankind reached a point of futility, that man re- man finally got to the place that he realized there's got to be something more here. And when mankind reached that place, then God sent His Son. That was the fullness of time. Well, the problem with that approach, a philosophical approach to this, is first of all, there is no evidence that mankind has reached and had reached any degree of spiritual maturity. In fact, if you look at first century Judaism, the people of God whom should have who should have been ready for the sending forth of God's Son, it was a spiritual wasteland. There was no spiritual maturity. There was no readiness of heart to receive this because they had achieved a certain level of spiritual understanding and maturity. So that's out. And the other side of that are those who would say, well, mankind just reached a point of futility. Well, there's no evidence that they reached a place of an awareness of their need either. And what do we see? The problem of the first century Judaism, of people that are filled with pride, at least religious leadership, and a, a people who are filled with a self-righteousness. They're not ready for this coming of Christ. So let's do away with the philosophical approach. Or another approach is that when people look at this and the fullness of time came, they take just a very practical approach. You look at how things had all come together in this day and in this time. Look at the the Roman Empire. And because of the Roman Empire, the Roman rule, and the large part of the known world, there was the opportunity for the spreading of the gospel there in a worldwide, in a very real sense, capacity. And you look at what the Romans did, the roads they built so you could get from one place to another, prepare the way for the gospel to go forth. And you look at how God, in the midst of a Roman empire, prepared this people to speak a common language, Koine Greek, Greek language, everybody speaks that. So you look at all the practical things, it just seems, and there's a whole list of other things you consider here, everything just seems right. So it's when all these things just kind of fell together that then, that was the fullness of time. That God sent His Son. <clears throat> and I, I will say this, that's a commendable approach. And I don't think we should completely dismiss it. But if we're not careful, it, we can seem to place... God in the place as the one who is waiting. He is looking. He is searching. And He is responding. And when all these things just happen to fall into place, then God does something. Now, we don't have to necessarily see it that way. But very easily we could. Which brings what I want to present to you is the third approach to this phrase. The fullness of time. I call it a theological or a biblical approach, a theocentric, a God-centered approach and understanding of this of this phrase. When the fullness of time came, God. Here's what I think Paul means: that God's predetermined plan. His decree, as laid out before the foundation of the world, it's culminated here and now. In other words, this is the right time. This is the fullness of time because this is the time that God chose. And that made it right. That made it the fullness of time. And if with that in mind, that God is the initiator, then you can look at these circumstances of the roman empire the greek language the, the roads that were built so the opportunity to spread in the gospel then you can look at that way if you're beginning with god in other words these things have been part of god's plan god has worked god has orchestrated these things together rather than these things have happened so god is says i'm going to do it now you see the difference starts with god god's the initiator god is the one who determines here that this is the right time. This is the fullness of time. Now, let's look at this in the context of what Paul gives us here in Galatians chapter 4. The illustration that he gives in that first three verses about this heir. The illustration he gives there, let me read these first three verses again. I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, and here he's explaining, he's applying what he said in verse 1 and 2. While we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. What's he saying here? Okay, his illustration is an illustration of an heir. And we understand what an heir is. An heir is someone who inherits something from his parents. And the, and this one he speaks of this is an heir that's he's not old enough to receive the inheritance. He's not of age, and what he says there, and he's as long as as long as the heir is a child, as long as he's young, he doesn't differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. So he had this heir, he's not of age to receive his inheritance, and so Paul says. Practically speaking, this heir is no different from a slave in that he is under the authority. Look what he says in verse 2. He is under guardians and he is under managers. He is under the authority of those that are in fact really beneath him. Because he hasn't inherited what's promised to him yet. There are things that are beneath him, those that are beneath him, that have authority over him. And he remains in that position until the time is predetermined by his father, according to verse 2. Now, what's he talking about here in the application he makes in verse 3? He says, also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. What's he talking about here? What he's talking about here, he's talking about all the people of God. From the first of the Old Testament to those... To those he's, he's looking at the people of God in one group and saying, we. So when he speaks of the Old Testament believers, he's including them. He says, that's we, that's part of us. So speaking of, of the church age, the Old Testament, the New Testament, he's speaking of those that while we were children... How's that being applied? How was it that we were children? In the Old Testament age. In the Old Testament age, the believers, they were under obligation to to regulations about food and about drinks and about washings and about sacrifices, dealing with, as he describes here, these elemental things of the world. In other words, these are just kind of earthly things. In one sense, you can do these things, there's absolutely no spiritual meaning to them. You can just do them. You can have these washings. You can have these things, foods you eat and foods you don't eat and regulations about drinking and the sacrifice that are offered. They're just dealing with earthly things. They're not spiritual. You can look and you can touch them and you can see them and you can do them. So it says that while we, and we there, speaking of the Old Testament church age, that we were children. We were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, in other words, the church of the Old Testament, the people of the Old Testament, their believers. They were held in bondage under these regulations. They were obligated to do them, but there was no salvation in them. In and of themselves. And he says that they were under these regulations that deal with elemental things of the world and earthly things until... The predetermined time of what? Of our Heavenly Father. Till the fullness of time. Comes in Christ. So what do we see here? What do we see here of the perfections? I said we see the perfections of God in His sending. What do we see here of God's perfections in Christ coming? And there's... Any number of things. I've chosen two. Number one, we see the sovereign power of God. We see the sovereign power of God that He is one whose purposes, those things which He has decreed to take place in eternity past, they come to pass. They happen. Who can thwart the will or the purposes or the plan of God? Do any of you have any unfulfilled plans? Think back. I could look back when I was in my late teens, early twenties, mid-twenties, and I didn't picture this at age 47, being here, pastoring a church in Bristol, Tennessee. didn't picture that. Yeah, I had some unfulfilled plans, visions, dreams, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes things change. Sometimes circumstances take place and we can't control those things. In my case, it's just a matter of since I've, just, since I've, I've followed God's calling for my life, I'm where I ought to be. But my dreams were not always what I, where I ought to have been or, or the things that I envisioned or the plans that I laid out. But you know of God that there are no unfulfilled plans, purposes... None can thwart His will. The sovereign power of God. That God is God. He is free to do as He wills. He is free to lay out His plans and His purposes. And as He has decreed from all of eternity past, before you and I ever showed up on the scene, He had His plan. And He's doing it. And He's doing it. And the the mystery of how it's all done, even with a fallen world with sinful men, that when it all comes to an end, when history as we know it is over, and Christ returns, the day of the Lord has come, and we stand before Him, and we stand before God, and, and God looks back and He says this, it's all done just as I've planned. It's all His plan. There's a lot of mystery in that, but I tell you what, we serve a great... And a sovereign and a powerful Lord, do we not? He makes his plan, he lays down his purposes, he has decreed these things within the Godhead from all of eternity past, and nothing, nothing has stopped that thing. So that when we come here to the fullness of time, God says, This is my time. It's my time that I send forth my Son. We also see here the wisdom, the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God infinitely above men. Let me ask you. How many of you. How many of you. Would ever have thought up something like God has thought up. To bring redeem sinners into himself. <laughs> Who but God could ordain. That he himself the creator becomes Part of his creation becomes one of his creation. It's wisdom. And the world looks at it, you know what the world says? It's foolishness. That's what Paul says, doesn't he? That's exactly right. That's foolishness. It's folly. Paul just reminds us that the foolishness of God, tongue in cheek, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. The wisdom of God, Christ coming, Christ coming was not a response to the request to the suggestions and to the ideas of men that the coming of Christ is initiated within the Godhead. He has ordained a plan. He has ordained a time. He has ordained a sending or a going forth of one and he's brought it to fruition, fulfillment in the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's let the advent of Christ, Christ coming as we are compelled to think about it, let it compel us to consider the marvel of of God's perfections. And this is just two. It could be the, the immutability of God that God does not change. That which He has decreed and determined it takes place. He does not change. His requirements do not change. He does it. On and on we could go. Let's just think about His power and His wisdom. The one who is eternally the same, He plans it. And he accomplishes it. One who is infinitely wise. A a plan of redemption that goes beyond, far beyond human comprehension. And far beyond anything that we could imagine and try to put into place. There's something to marvel about, isn't it? There's something to meditate upon. There's something for us to ponder. Let's meditate and marvel and ponder great thoughts on a great God this season. Think of of Him. Think of what what kind of a God He must be. That when He decrees, when He's determined this is the time, it takes place. The fullness of time. There is more here than a manger. There is more here than the swaddling clothes. It is God's perfect plan brought to fulfillment for our good, yes. But for His glory, ultimately. And supremely. It's a reflection. It's something that compels us to fall before Him. To give glory to God as we think about in this fullness of time. God. Glory be to God. Second, we see here God's presence in His Son. God's presence in His Son. What does our text tell us about this One who is sent? It tells us three things. first thing it tells us is... It's His Son. It's His Son. This One who is sent forth. God sent forth His Son. You remember last week, the ones you were here in Micah 5 two. we talked about this One who's going forth. This One who is sent forth. They are from the days of eternity. In other words, He's been going forth through all of eternity past. He goes forth, He is sent forth as God. What does that mean? To say that He is God's Son. Well, if we consider that text there in Micah 5.2 last week, whose goings forth are from the days of eternity, He's clearly indicating, God speaking, He's clearly indicating He was before time, so He must be God. But Jesus... In his earthly ministry, there were times that he called God his Father. And you know the consequence of that when he'd make that public profession, that confession that God was his Father? The response of the Jews to that was, they sought to kill him. Why? Well, in John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was calling God his own Father, and here's how they interpreted that. And they were right. They didn't always get it right. They got this right. Making himself equal with God. They understood what it meant for Jesus to say that God was his Father. That he was the Son of God. That he was doing nothing less than making himself equal with God. He is God. Jesus said in John 10:30, I and the Father are one. Well, how is that to be understood? Well, John ten thirty-three tells us how it was understood, said the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So what does it mean to say that Jesus is God's Son? He says he's God. He is equal with God. He is Jesus. The name Jesus means God, our salvation. He is called Emmanuel. God with us. The Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah, of the Messiah who is to come. One of His names. Eternal Father, the everlasting Father. There was no question in the mind of those who fully understood, once you grasp these messianic prophecies about Christ, this Messiah who was coming, He wasn't just a man. He was God. Not only is He the Son of God, which makes Him God Himself, He is also, number two, according to our text here, verse 4, born of a woman. Born of a woman. Now, with the recent arrival in our family of Camden back in August... You know, it's the occasion to think about the wonder and the marvel of life itself, and the life cycle, and the mystery and the marvel of of conception and and pregnancy and delivery, birth, and and now we're to the point of as we watch him grow, just watching development and this and this little person. <laughs> he's somebody. You know, Beth and I would contemplate even before before Ken was born to think, oh, there's a he's a person that you're carrying, and. I'm just a little comfortable. I'm just kind of simple. That's kind of amazing to me. <laughs> you think about you think about that, that in one moment that a child is within the womb of its mother and everything is just fine and then it's born and the environment's completely different. He's breathing all of a sudden. Everything changes and you know what? How can he live from here to here? And and it's fine. Just the way that God ordained it. There's a lot of that to marvel in. Put that process in your mind as we think about the manner of God's arrival on earth. The amazing thing about God's arrival here is that He gets here the same way we do. Born of a woman. How does God, Son of God, how does God and born of a woman, how does it possibly go together? If we, wonder, if we understand anything of the glory and the greatness of God, and we've considered just passing and hit the top of some of His perfections, anything of the greatness and the glory of God, how can you be talking about God and at the same time say, born of a woman? God entered the human race became one of us fully god fully man maybe we just need to go home and think about that don't we to be amazed to have something of the marvel you just think about a person being born how much more Could this be god Could this be god that is born of a of a woman born of mary Then in verse, the third thing that we see in this verse about this one who is sent, it says that he is born under the law. Verse 4, the very last phrase. Born under the law. What's he saying here? Well, first of all, to be born under the law is simply a, a natural consequence of being born of a woman. If you were born of a woman, you're born under law. So that's kind of a natural consequence here. But what it's saying here is that Jesus, as God Himself, He placed Himself under all the requirements of the law. The requirements of what's right and what is wrong. Now, there's some debate here, what He's talking about, that being born under law in a general sense... As all men have a law unto themselves. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2. Even those who have known nothing of the truth of God. They have a law unto themselves. It's in their own conscience. They have a sense of right and wrong. Everyone does. Or is he talking about the law. As revealed to us in the Old Testament. the, The moral law of God. Well I think we can say the answer to that question is yes. He is placed under law. Simply by entering into the human race. that He has the obligations to to live by what is a standard of right and wrong. But, as a Jew, Jesus didn't just come into the human race in some place. He came to the human race in Israel. He was placed under God's law. God's revealed law as well. What does does he say here? He was born under the law. And what did Jesus do? He fulfilled all the requirements of the law. Everything that was required of God, Jesus fulfilled that perfectly. Now, what did that accomplish? Two things. Number one, it qualifies him as the sinless sacrifice so that his death can pay for the sin of someone else, not just his own. If you've got your own sin to die for, you can't die for somebody else's. And so by the, by the fact that Jesus lived a sinless life and he, he qualified himself to be a perfect, spotless lamb sacrificed to pay for the sins of someone else. But that's not all. By the fact that he met all the requirements of the law perfectly. He lived a perfect and sinless life. This this active obedience of a righteous life. It provides merit for us. So that we can have the merits of a righteous life imputed to us. That's the importance. It's not just in His death, folks. It's in His living. It's not just His death that's important. It's His life that's important. And so we have the righteousness of a perfect life imputed to our account so that our unrighteousness of an imperfect and a sin-filled, a sin-still life, sin-filled life is placed upon Him and His merits placed upon us. We've got to see that. We don't need just the death of Jesus. We need His life. We need His righteousness imputed to us as the people of God. So in death he paid for our sins, but in his life he provides a righteousness that can be applied to our accounts. That give you anything to wonder or marvel about? <laughs> that God came in the he's present and His Son, and the wonders, and the marvels of Christ coming, that it was here, God with us, the Creator, like His creation, by way of Mary's womb, He's held to the law's standard, He fulfills it completely, and He grants to us, He grants to us, all who believe, that righteousness, the merits of that righteous, perfect, sinless life. We need that. So we can rejoice in His righteousness if we believed. We rejoice in His death, but we rejoice in His life. But I can be received and I can look at all my imperfections and I know that what is seen and what is accounted toward me before God is the perfections of Christ. His perfect, meritorious life imputed to me. God's presence in His Son. Finally, we see here God's purpose in His salvation. Verse 5. In order that. It tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us there's a purpose here. Here's the reason. Or here's what's accomplished by Jesus being sent, born of a woman, born under the law. Here's the reason. In order that, verse 5, that He might redeem those who were under the law... That we might receive the adoption as sons. What's the reason? What's the purpose? Well, the purpose clause there verse 5 is, it tells us, first of all, the reason for what's given in verse 4. There's a primary purpose here. The primary purpose is this. That He might redeem those who who are under the law. What does it say here? That Jesus was born under the law. That He might redeem those. Who are under the law. And what's He saying? What's taking place here? Well the word redeem. Or the idea of redemption. Means to buy back. And turn back with the Galatians. Chapter 3 verse 13. What did He do? Galatians 3 13. It says. Christ redeemed. Or Christ bought. Or Christ purchased us. From the curse of of the law that's what it means to be under the law if you're under the law you are cursed we talked about that already what does the law make you feel it condemns us because we're guilty and it makes us feel guilty because we are guilty and he says in verse Galatians 3:13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law and how did he do it having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So what do we see? The curse of the law. It's just judgment. It's just. The law rightly condemns us because we're guilty. So the curse of the law is the just judgment upon all who fail to perfectly obey every aspect of the law. That's everybody. Paul says that curse fell upon Christ The curse that was due those who were guilty fell upon the guiltless one. Christ who had no guilt, no sin of His own. But as we're reminded in the book of Isaiah 53, He was for our failures. He was for our transgressions. He was for our sins. He was cursed. The curse of the law fell upon Him. It was as though He had not obeyed the law because we had not obeyed the law. And our sin placed upon Him. That's the primary purpose, that He's redeemed those who were under the law by placing Himself under the law, receiving the penalty of that law, not for His sin. He didn't have any, but for our sin. But secondly, we see there's a consequ- consequential result here. The primary result was to redeem us. The consequential result is that we might receive the adoption as sons. Verse 5. Here's the greatness of God's grace and His love. That's what John says, isn't it? In First John, it says, "Behold, what manner of love! I mean, this is the King James. Like all these different translations. But behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God." And here it is: the greatness of God's love that His enemies. We who were the enemies of God. That's what Paul says in Romans 5, doesn't he? While we're yet His enemies. That His enemies become sons. I mean, can't you forgive somebody for their crimes, for their sins against you? They'd be forgiven, but you just keep them at an arm's distance. I'll forgive you, but buddy, don't get too close to me. What does God do? He says, I forgive you, but I bring you in. And the only way to preserve you from sin is to bring you into My Son. And that's what He does. It is that we're not held afar off, but we are, we're embraced, that we're brought into God's family And another marvel of, of what takes place when a person becomes a Christian when the Scripture speaks of our union with Christ. We are united with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. More important than Christ in you, you in Him. To be brought into His family. To know that Christ's love for me as, a, as His own child is as sure as His love for Jesus Christ is only begotten. It's just as sure. Christ's coming was to make a purchase, to purchase a people for Himself, to purchase those whom God had given to Him, is what He says in John. Those whom the Father given unto me, they come. And those who have their sin, they placed upon His account and His merits, placed upon their account. And Him dying, tasting the wrath of God on behalf of all who come believing in Him. To those who admit their guilt. Those who are willing to say, I deserve that. I deserve not just the wrath of men that was poured out upon Christ as he, as he received the ridicule and the scorn and the mockery that He received. Not just that, but I received what was really going on at Calvary and that was the wrath of God being poured out upon Christ. I deserve that. I deserve the fury of God for my sin. And it's those, those... For whom Christ has come. It is those who find life. In him. It is those who have their sins. Placed upon him. And it is those who have his merits. Applied to them. Those who believe in Christ. Surely we have reason. Do we not to marvel and to wonder. It is going to be greater than than what the world's got to offer. You know, it's not going to be the greatest toy, the best toy that may be broken. I got a toy back when I was six, five or six years old. It was a, a walking dog. You put batteries in it and you, and you, and you walked. I don't think he walked more than three steps and he just died. <laughs> now we've got something better than that, don't we? We've got something to truly marvel in. God's purpose of salvation, God's purpose to redeem us, who were under the law, that's us, that we might receive the adoption as sons, to be received into his family. Our great God redeems us. Think about this. He redeems us by him paying for the sins that we have committed against him. With his life. He pays for my offenses against him by dying for me. Isn't that something to marvel about? And our God granting every benefit of sonship in Christ. Folks, if he's done this, what in the world? What in the world is he going to hold back? What's he going to hold back? He's done the hard thing. He's already died. And now as the sons of God, as the children of God, every benefit of sonship in Christ, everything you could possibly hope for has been a child of God, is yours in Christ. So, as we approach... Christmas, may the wonders of this Advent season be God's perfections in His sending. Wonder at it. Wonder at all the perfections. I've hit two. Make your list. There's some meditation for the day. May it be God's presence in His Son. That's something to wonder about. God came. He didn't just send somebody. He came. His purpose is salvation to redeem us who stood condemned before him, under his law condemned, that he might bring us nigh into his family, to himself. There's something worth pondering. There's something worth marveling. There's something worth wondering. May the Lord give us grace in these days to do so. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we confess that we marvel so much at things so small and things so tantamount, so significant. We marvel so little. But these things would not be embraced by us. They would not be grasped at all apart from the work of Your Spirit to open our eyes and to see. And Lord, many times as Your children, we just simply need to slow down and think again. Slow down and ask the Spirit of God to, to make these things fresh to us. And I pray that You would fill our hearts this day. Season with the marvel of the salvation so great, the marvel of a God that is so glorious, and all that you have done in condescending for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.